right, Isaiah chapter 42. I'm going to start reading at verse number 10, and I'm going to go through to chapter 43, verse 1. Now, this is all one section. The reason I'm going to 43, verse 1, is I want to continue the context so you can see it. Uh, Too often we get um, caught up in the chapter and verse breaks. I mean, it's great for... Uh, you know, knowing where we are in the scripture, and it's great for daily Bible readings and all of that, uh, but they're not in the original text, and sometimes we we miss the context because we start at one chapter, or we complete one chapter, and we don't go on and see how it flows. So I want to show tonight how this is flowing, because we're going to get the full picture of what's going on. Even though this whole section goes on for a while, we can kind of catch a little bit of it here. So let's start at verse Number 10. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that it is that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing, let them shout from the top of the mountains, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will make the rivers coastlands. I will dry up the pools. I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them in crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed who trust in carved images, who say to the molded images, You are our gods. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but you do not observe. Opening the ears, but he does not hear. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes, and they have hidden in prison, and they are hidden in prison houses, for they are prey, and no one delivers for plunder, and no one says, Restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord against he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he has poured on him the fury of his anger, and the strength of battle it has set him on fire all around. Yet he did not know, and it burned him, yet he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This section starts with a praise to the Lord. It's very exultant, and it's universal. It starts with the idea of new songs. Sing to the Lord a new song, and this is a recurring theme. Uh, You may have sung them in uh, your Calvary Chapel chorus song, Sing to the Lord a New Song. Um, 
that idea, it's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. It is always connected with a new revelation of the plan of salvation, usually to the new covenant. And what's new here, this new revelation, singing this new song, is that it's not just Israel being called to sing. It's the whole earth. Those who go down onto their ships, those in the coastlands, those on the islands, those in faraway places, these two places that he names, Kedar and Selah, no one's quite sure exactly where they are. Uh, there's speculation that it could perhaps be referring to the Arabian Peninsula there, uh, the Bedouins who wander. Uh, but here the, the idea that comes through just from a simple reading is the universality of God calling the Gentiles and God calling everything together. And remember in the, in the context of this passage, the idea is the God of Jacob contrasted with all the idols of the heathen. You go to worship the idols of the heathen because you believe the idols of the heathen will give you those things uh, that you can't get yourself. And if you learn how to manipulate the powers, then you can have uh, your crops, you can have your health, you can have a safe childbirth, you can have all these things that the idols of the heathen are going to give you. Victory at war, and so forth, and so on. It would be very common, I've said this before, for Israel, when they go into exile, to think that Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, has won. And therefore, that perhaps they could offer their sacrifices to Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, get Marduk on their side, and then maybe they could be free. As we've seen in the history of the kings of Israel, many of them thought that way, and many of them did that. And this polemic here, this uh, pleading of the Lord, is urging them to view reality. The gods of the heathen are demons. Uh, the gods of the heathen have the world in bondage. God has given the world over to the prince of the power of the air. And they have no power to save or to destroy. Only the creator has the power to save. So, this is the theme of this whole section here. And once we see the reality of sin and our separation from God, then we see how useless the idols of the heathen are to save us from that sin. This is the context of the reform doctrine that we call total depravity. I'm not a huge fan of that phrase. I don't really think something as deep as that can be caught in a soundbite. Um, it's a cancer that invades everything. It's leading to death. It's the bondage and corruption of sin that is so intense only the creator God, only the God who created everything, can free us from it. This is a very sober thing to look at. So here, in anticipation of this great deliverance, all of the nations are called to praise Jehovah, singing a new song of salvation. It's not just Israel. It's the, the, Je Jehovah is revealed as not just the God of Israel, but the God of the whole earth. He's created everything. He's even created those people and those people. And he's created the Babylonians. And he controls the affairs of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Assyrians and the Aramaeans. All of it is in the hands of God. From the farthest reaches of the ships to the depths of the ocean uh, to the highest top of the mountains. And all of them are called to give praise to the Lord. Uh, look at verse number um, 
uh, 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And the reason is, verse number 13, he shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, just shout aloud and prevail against his enemies. So there is the imagery of the conquering hero that God is going to deliver us from the bondage that our enemy has placed us in. Um, Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Uh, Paul said that the, uh, the gods of the heathen are demons. Moses said the same thing. There is a spiritual realm that we know nothing about. We only see the outworkings of it on this earth. Uh, we know that before Christ came into the world, God chose Israel as his nation. And the goal was to spread the kingdom of God throughout the whole earth, just like what was failed in Eden. And God is out working out this plan of salvation. When he comes, remember that was the promise in the Garden of Eden that said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, it will bruise his. It will bruise his heel, and he shall crush his head. Uh, there's a the the beginning of the revelation that there will come the mighty warrior who will defeat and take away the power of the serpent who now has the whole earth under his power. In the days of Isaiah, God is overall, and yet and God is controlling the armies of Babylon, the armies of the Assyrians, and yet there are the demonic powers at work. The bondage of sin and the bondage of misery is far greater than we can imagine. It isn't that sin is far more than just a series of misdeeds. That's the mistake that people make about sin. They think that sin is a series of misdeeds. It is not. It's a cancer. It's a power that we do not have the ability to free ourselves from. No one does. Here in our text, the idols have no power to free ourselves from sin, to free people from sin. And the heart of the problem is this cancer of sin, alienation from God. The power of sin is death. Death invades everything. And it can't be overcome by saying, well, today I'm going to make better choices. I knew a young man about 30 years ago. He was 18 years old in the 80s, and he absolutely loved the Beatles. That's a little bit of a soft way of saying it. He was obsessed with the Beatles, particularly John Lennon. One day he came in and he shaved his beard, he cut his hair, he was in a, uh, a very conservative haircut, he wore conservative clothes, first time I'd ever seen that. And I didn't even recognize him at first. I said, what's going on? He said he became a Mormon. Uh, the reason he became a Mormon was because he was absolutely convinced that John Lennon was in heaven, and if he was ever going to meet John Lennon, he would have to straighten up his act. Uh, and so he cut his hair and he put on clean clothes and, and uh, became a Mormon. Um, unfortunately, that has no power over the flesh. I don't know what happened to that young man. I've, I have an idea that was pretty short-lived. Um, but this is the mistake we all make. If we start making better choices, we will somehow deliver us from deliver ourselves from the power of sin. I get so discouraged when I see Christians obsessing over the laws of the land as if more policemen and, and better policies will overcome the power of sin. It doesn't work that way. 
There is no idol, no power, no force that can untangle the bonds of sin. The proof of that is we're all going to die. That's the power of sin. So now the Lord is describing himself as going into battle with sin and misery and this enemy that we cannot overcome. The picture is, is, is like Israel and Babylon or Israel and Egypt where they're enslaved. They can't just say, you know what? I don't think I want to be a slave anymore. I'm going to leave. It doesn't work that way. Only God can deliver them. And so now he's saying with this language of the mighty man of war, uh, the Lord comes as a mighty man of war to defeat our enemies. Uh, and it's really funny, of course, in this highly, intensely patriarchal world where they talk about manly strength as the power to overcome sin. The very next phrase, he describes himself as a woman in labor. Um, that's God himself still talking. And the idea is, as a woman in labor, first of all, I don't know which one of these figures to hit first. He's drawing us back to the Garden of Eden, the seed of the woman. And he's connecting himself now to the one who's bringing forth the seed of the woman. Did you catch that? How beautiful that is? God himself. But also this imagery of giving birth. There is the pain and the travail and the difficulty and the hard labor and the just, ugh, I can't imagine the pain involved. But then, when the baby is born, there's new life. And all the previous, previous pain is forgotten. And God, using this language of creation, this, he created the world so that he could reveal himself to us. And it's always by analogy. God isn't a woman. God isn't a man. God isn't in labor. God doesn't change. And yet, here's the description of God bringing about his plan of salvation, working through history before Christ came in the world, like a woman in labor, working through all of these events and pulling them all together and struggling and striving with his people and, and protecting them and leading them and punishing them and driving them into exile and saving them and one thing right after another until everything is perfect and his only begotten son comes into the world. There's a long delay. Why is there a long delay? Because God is like a woman in labor bringing forth in the right time. Paul says, in the fullness of time, Christ came, born under the law, born of a woman, that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Isn't that a beautiful figure? And so now, now he's describing this redemption in terms that Israel, especially future Israel, can understand. Israel coming out of Babylon. Uh, what are the perils coming out of Babylon? Well, there's deserts, there's ponds, there's quicksands, there's bodies of water, there's mountains, there's hills, there's cliffs, there's dangers, there's wild beasts, all of that. God will smooth away with all of that and bring his people out. But there's more than just that. God is talking about a time when he brings his son into the world, when we will truly be delivered from the real enemy. As we all know, read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. God delivered them from Babylon, brought them back in Jerusalem. Did that solve all their problems? 
were all of a sudden they now holy and wise and good people? Or did they struggle with the exact same thing? See the leadership at the book of, uh, we see Nehemiah at the end of his book, beating and punching the people because they didn't learn their Hebrew lessons. Uh, the same spirit is just the beginning of the Phariseeism. If we keep this law perfect, God isn't going to punish us anymore. It didn't solve anything. It's a picture of the true deliverance to come. And remember, the overarching goal of all of this is why isn't it possible for idols to deliver man from his real problem? You could conceivably say, ooh, Marduk won that battle. Um, he brought the Babylonians away. Of course, we know it wasn't Marduk. It was Jehovah. But one thing Marduk can never do is change anybody's heart. He can't open the eyes of the blind. He can't open the ears of the deaf. You can get the right political party in power and all the Supreme Court judges you want, and you'll still have sin. You'll still have corruption. You can put a policeman on every corner, but who's going to watch the policeman? As we find out almost every day. So to bring this in, the, the goal of this is verse 17. When this redemption is finally done, the people of God will finally realize the ridiculousness of idols. Greatly ashamed. That word shame, one of the lexicons I read years ago described that word shame and it stuck in my head. It's the, uh, you put your trust in something that proves to be a lie. And so it's like uh, when you've invested your life savings with someone who turns out to be a con man and you lose everything. That's ashamed. You put all of your trust in a rope that's going to hold you up on the rock climbing wall and it's not a rope at all. It's a spider web and you fall down. That's ashamed. When what you put your trust in falls. You put your trust in the idols. And man, they're, they're big and they're pretty and they're beautiful and everybody else is doing it. They can't be wrong. Look at the thousands of people bowing down to the great figure in Babylon. And only three people wouldn't bow down. They're getting thrown into the fiery furnace. But God's promise is those who put trust in idols will be greatly ashamed because the idols are not going to bring them what they think they're going to bring them. They're not going to bring the salvation that you're looking for because it's the idols that we're enslaved to to begin with. The problem with all of mankind is because of sin and guilt and misery and death or under the bondage of sin and guilt and misery and death, which is the power of the devil. The power of the devil is the power of the fear of death. And by putting your trust in the devil, you're putting your trust in the one who holds the power of death, uh, which you're putting your trust in death, which makes no sense. You can't expect darkness to give light. Here's the problem, and this is the description in the next phrase. Hear you deaf, look you blind that you may see. Here, all of you who are deaf, listen. All of you who are blind, look and see. You see the absurdity of that? 
How on earth can they keep that command? A masterful speaker can go stand in a graveyard and give an eloquent oratory in the graveyard, and he won't raise anybody from the dead. You can speak all you want to to a blind man, and you won't open his eyes. You can give the command to love, but that's not going to make somebody love. My, my example that I use all the time, which you know it's coming if you've been listening to me, you can tell me that I have to love ketchup. If you're strong enough, powerful enough, and have strong enough negative consequences, I can pretend to like ketchup. But you can't make me like ketchup. It's the same thing with anyone else. Who can bring something clean out of someone unclean? You can pretend to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because God commanded you to. But eventually you'll be exposed. And your true heart will come out. This is the problem with the old law. You can force yourself to offer your uh, tithes of mint and anise and cumin. But you can't force yourself to love your neighbor as yourself. God requires love. How can the law bring forth love? God requires us to see, but we're blind. God requires us to hear, but we're deaf. But here's the hope, and this is what I want to tie together. In the very next verse, who is blind but my servant? Remember what I said last week? My servant refers sometimes to the nation of Israel and sometimes to the one. But really it's deeper than that. It's the one in representation of the whole. The one was born of a woman born under the law. He took upon himself our blindness, our deafness. Of course, he wasn't. He was true and eternal God. Uh, he took upon himself the penalty of sin, so he wasn't actually blind and he wasn't actually deaf. But the nation of Israel was blind to death, and he identified with that blindness and that deafness. But here's the point that Isaiah is making. Speak, think about it in terms of the nation of Israel. Israel was called to see. They were called to hear. They were called to be a light to the Gentiles. They were called, Moses said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, no nation on earth has laws as wonderful and as wise and as just as your laws. All the nations of the world will be looking at your laws going, man, those are some wise laws. You'll be a light to the Gentiles. And they were. There was no laws in the world that protected women from a band of invading soldiers, except in Moses. And no, they weren't redeemed yet because Christ hadn't come. There was no laws in the world about rape. There were no laws in the world about child molestation. There was no laws about incest. There was no laws protecting women in divorce situations. All of this was brand new to the world. This was light in the darkness, and the Redeemer hadn't even come yet. It all looked forward to the Redeemer. They were the, the second phrase of verse 19, the messengers. They were the ones that were to be reflecting God's 
beauty and love and wisdom and power and righteousness to the whole world. And now God is looking at him going, is there anybody in the world as blind as you people? Is there anyone in the world as deaf as you people who had all the advantages of the law, all the advantages of the love of Christ? You've seen everything. You saw Moses going up to the mountain and coming down with the tables of stone. You saw God himself giving the law from the top of Mount Sinai. You saw the Red Sea open. You didn't observe any of it. You heard a lot of words. You didn't listen to any of them. And then in verse 21, the Lord is well pleased. This phrase is for, for God's righteousness. For what pleases the Lord is to display his righteousness. It sounds like such one of those old fire and brimstone type people. But we're created in the image of God. We know what this means. If you see a person who is kind, loving, generous, faithful in his business, faithful with people around him who loves his wife and loves his children, and all of his business dealings are straight, and you can trust him in your house, you will be more attracted to that man than you will be to a thug and a thief and a rapist and a murderer. Now, multiply that by a billion, where there's no darkness in God whatsoever. God has righteous standards that are woven into all of creation, and they're pleasing to the Lord. Fair and just dealings with one another, love, beauty, honor, all of these things that are pleasing to the Lord. Because righteousness is pleasing to the Lord. This is the gist of the Hebrew. Because righteousness is the pleasing to the Lord, the law of Israel was given to them and made honorable. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness against thy neighbor. Really, nobody likes to hang around with a liar. Because God delights in righteousness, that's what he did. God's righteous standards haven't changed. But look at God's people. Once again, all the privileges of God's people. There wasn't one thing that God could have done more to bless and honor the people of Israel. He fed them in the wilderness. He sent them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, according to Micah. Micah 6 is all about this. Micah 6 is the same thing. He's saying, what more could I have given you? Didn't you see Balaam? Didn't you see the Red Sea open? What more could I have done that I didn't do to you? I've given you a perfect law, and now look at you. Because of the righteousness, your absolute refusal to abide by anything... You're now hiding in holes. You're robbed, you're snared, you're driven away, you're prey. You're the plunder of the world. Verse 23, who's going to pay attention to this? Listen to this, listen to him. And now he gets to the heart of the issue. The reason you're in Babylon, Israel, is not because Marduk has won over Jehovah. It's because everything I said that would happen to you in Deuteronomy, what I said through my servant Moses, everything I said, I brought to pass. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not I, the Lord? I said the former things would happen. I said way back to Moses, 
These are the curses that will come upon you if you go worship the idols of the nations. He says, and I did every one of them to you. I poured on you my the fury of my anger. I sold you into Babylon. I surrounded you with all of these judgments. Did that wake you up? The very last phrase, he did not take it to heart. And this is why idols can't ever redeem. There is no power on heaven and earth that can redeem. Because all it can do is lay down the law. If you have a strong enough cell and strong enough punishments and strong enough policemen, like they've discovered in totalitarian nations, you could put a camera in everybody's home and you could get enough people to monitor and spy on those cameras and you'll still have sinners everywhere. In fact, They'll probably be worse. They will be because people are hardwired to rebel. The tighter you tighten the screws, the more they rebel. But let's suppose you, there is an adulterer. It's a guy that's that's bent on committing adultery, and he commits adultery. You say, okay, you got to stop committing adultery. He won't stop committing adultery. So you can arrest him. You can put him in a cell. You can lock the cell and throw away the key. And not give him access to anybody again ever. He'll still be an adulterer. Because there's no power that can make a dead man alive. There's no power that can open the eyes of the blind. There's no power that can open the ears of the deaf. And God is not interested in taking all of humanity whom he created in his image and throwing them into a prison, making robots about out of them. He's not interested in compelling proper behavior. He's interested in seeing his image in us, making us alive. Only the Creator can do that. Idols can't. And that's why I wanted to read the first verse of chapter 41. But now... Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. See how beautiful that is? We're going to look more thoroughly at all of that at the next one. But there wasn't anything that Israel did. And remember back to the song of praise in verse number 10. It's a universal song of praise. So the whole flow of the argument is there isn't anyone in the world that's as blind as Israel and Jacob was. And if God redeems them, then all of you who are blind and deaf can rejoice because God calls things that aren't as though they were, as he says in Romans. So think of if God can save Paul the blind and deaf Pharisee, then he can save me. If God can call those people who are shouting crucify him on the streets of Jerusalem, call them to himself on the day of Pentecost, then God can save you and me. That's the heart of redemption. 
And it's such a huge mistake for us to say, well, what the world needs is better laws, stricter laws. What the world needs is to go back to the law of Moses. Did the law of Moses save even one person? Did it save any nation? It didn't even save Israel. Suppose we could have God speaking to America or Canada or wherever, the Philippines, from the top of the highest mountain. Would that save any of them? I pretty much guarantee you that as soon as that happened, we'd all be building golden calves and dancing around it, just like Israel did of old, because that's what people do. Unless the Lord redeems us. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of God's righteousness. Don't be afraid of his justice. Those are good things. Don't be afraid. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. With that, we'll stop and we'll go on to chapter 43 next week. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a beautiful thing it is that we are yours. You've called us by name. Even though we grew fat and kicked, we've rebelled against you. We've been blind and deaf, dead in trespasses and sins. Yet you love us. You are redeeming us into your glorious image. What a wonderful thing that is. Cause us to walk in that newness of life. Teach us to hate those things that you hate and love those things that you love. In Jesus' name, 